Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. We have got a very illustrious notorious, guest, notorious, notorious, well-known um personality, icon, whatever you, want, whatever you want to define him as. He's been on the podcast many times before. He's my friend. He's your friend. It is Mr. Bob Ackmorny. Welcome back to the show, buddy. Thanks for coming Hello. on. He's, Big round of applause. He's back. Is this your third or fourth time? Third, fourth. Matt, I think I, this is the fourth. This now. is the fourth time. Gentlemen, I've had more appearances than both of you combined. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, for our listeners, just to reference, the first one Bobak did was back in episode 45, a long, 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 long time ago. And yeah. Some of the stuff that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about is pre-referenced in that episode. So yeah. listen to that one first. Yeah. So for anyone that's been living under a rock or isn't familiar with the uh, aesthetics industry, particularly here in Australia, um, Bobak Moini and his partner at the time, Mr. Alistair Champion, founded laser clinics australia which has become well up until today it might be changing in the future which is i guess the the main subject of what we're talking about on today's podcast the largest chain of cosmetic clinics in the world and the first of its kind in many ways because it revolutionized the way aesthetic medicine was practiced here in australia you took uh, treatments that were out of reach out of touch for the average australian person and made them accessible and affordable to people and you've been on an amazing uh, journey during your career over the last sort of 10 to 20 years. Maybe it's even a little bit longer than that. And the reason for bringing you on today um, is we're at a really interesting point in our industry where there's a lot of crazy things happening. We've got uh, a industry that has been dominated in the last five to 10 years by chain clinics. And, and most of them have been modeled off your creation, which was Laser Clinics Australia. And they've all, but one or two have been bought up by large corporations um, that have changed the trajectory of these businesses, um, have changed the way our industry operates, the way that patients interact with them, the way that nurses and, and doctors um, conduct their business on, on a day-to-day basis. And we have got some pretty exciting things to talk about today. And one of them in particular is the, the looming or pending sale of Silk Clinics, which uh, at the moment is a publicly listed company, um, which looks like it's going to be purchased by API, which is a subsidiary of West Farmers, which is a large corporation here in Australia. And uh, you've been uh, shackled for many years, Mr. Bobak, because you've had uh, restraints that have, I guess, curtailed things that you could say or opinions that you have. Those, those days are now gone. I know you've sort of got clearance from your lawyers and all your handlers and minders to, to let us know that you're actually able to talk quite freely. And we thought there's a lot of people asking about this topic at the moment. What does it mean? Where is the industry at at the moment? Um, and to get your opinions on is this a good deal? What is likely to happen in the future? 
Um, we might touch a little bit on your experiences with LCA, how that sale went through, um, where you think that is, uh, where LCA is at as a business, um, and decisions and 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 suggestions that you would make for those businesses moving into the future, I guess. Would that be a fair summary, Jack? I think that's a great sort of taster of what's to come. It would be useful because we've had so yeah. many new listeners and, and maybe even this is the first podcast they've listened to. If Bobby, if you just want to, you know, just to give us a flavor, like a real short story of where you came from, what LCA was, and then we can get yeah. into the present day. Yeah. Sure. Thank you for the great introduction, gentlemen. I used to be, a long time ago, a lifetime ago, I used to be an actuary. An actuary is an expert in probability. I worked in an office, absolutely hated it. I was glued to a chair. I could not wait to leave. Around the same time, I was looking for a treatment, for a solution to my excess body hair, and I stumbled upon laser hair removal. I had a session on my chest and stomach, which took about an hour and a half, and it cost me about $2,000. And I thought to myself, yikes, hmm. yikes, this is so expensive. Why does this need to be $2,000? And this is going back all the way to the year 1997, 1998, and this is before GST. The doctor left the room in which I was having the treatments, I took a pen and a piece of paper and I wrote down the name of the distributor on that piece of paper. The name of that distributor was Hanimex Medical and the name of the machine was the Candela Gentle Lace. I approached Hanimex Medical and I bought one laser. <laughs> I did a calculation that if I only lasered the members of my immediate family, I'd pay off that laser. <laughs> and can I just say, because Bobak's on video, he's as smooth as a baby seal now. So yeah. it obviously <laughs> works. <laughs> but, uh, you look like you're made out of latex. Yeah. 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 I have a rule I don't make out with any women with more body hair than myself. <laughs> it explains why I'm a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so carry on. Carry on with the story. Yes. So. From there, there was a business born called The Australian Laser Clinic. And that business started in early 1999. Within, within a few weeks, I had paid off the cost of that laser. Then I bought another laser. Then I bought another one and another one and another one. And within a matter of a few years, I had 46 locations around Australia and New Zealand providing laser hair removal. And we were doing it whilst the other operators were very small operators. Basically, it was a dermatologist. It was a plastic surgeon. It was rare that these treatments were provided in beauty salons. So instead of charging $2,000 for a chest and stomach or $700 for a, you know, at the time it was a bikini line, we were charging about half the prices of what the others were charging. But we had better marketing. And we had a lot of clients and we took the laser, laser to the masses. But at this juncture, we had not dropped prices dramatically. Mm -hmm. So that model went on for a few years. It did very well. Eventually, I sold that business. Down the track, we started another business. And this business I started in partnership with a guy called, a friend of mine called Alistair Champion. We started off Laser Clinics Australia. 
Now, what we did at Laser Clinics Australia, which was open towards the end of 2008, is we decided that we would have retail pricing, very cheap retail pricing for laser hair removal. We would run it on special. We would put this clinic in shopping centres and we would have franchise partners, partners who earned 50% of the business with us. And we ran a very simple model, which was effectively just laser hair removal and Botox fillers. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of Laser Clinics Australia, which started in late 2008. By 2014, it had been sold down to private equity. And by 2017, the entire sale was completed to KKR, an American hedge fund. So my understanding was 2014, you sold some of your share of the business and by 2017, the whole thing. Is that correct? Correct. We sold 50% in 2014 and the remaining 50% in 2017. Okay. So we're caught up with the background. Yeah. Great summary. And so you've been sitting on the sidelines for the last five or six years watching your creation grow and evolve and mature. What are your thoughts on on how how that's gone? Look, to be frank, KKR have done a very poor job on running laser clinics. I don't recognize the model that was created by us. I think it's now a very poor model with a lot of intrinsic problems. Now, I can go through some of those bullet points with you. It's The initial model was a very simple strategy of selling hair and Botox. It's now increased to a very broad offering. This offering includes fat freezing, BBL Hero, aquafacials, additional skincare such as Dr. Robot, Hydrogelly, Cloresca, Fractional RF. The issue is they've now confused their customers and in the process they've confused themselves. Mm. They employ people at head office who don't understand the industry. They're learning as they go along. Most importantly, we had a genuine partnership with our franchisees. We listened to our franchisees who understood what the customers wanted. They were a genuine 50-50 partner. Now what happens, KKR runs this model without, in effect, listening to their franchisees. The people who are running head office don't understand the industry. These guys are bankers with spreadsheets, and they don't listen to the people who run the clinics. As a result, I'm not upbeat on the model. Now, don't take it from me. There were approximately, and this was widely reported in the press, there were approximately 50 franchisees that got up and in an uprising against KKR and LCA head office. And in effect, KKR has bought 50 franchisees off the network. Now, KKR and head office are unable to run these clinics. The entire model that we had set up was designed for franchisees to run the clinic. Now they've got 50 clinics that, they, that it, they're finding impossible to run, but they didn't have a choice but to buy these but to buy these franchises out. Can, can I interject, Otherwise, Bobby? So 
2014, when you still had a foot in the door, I think you still had 50% of your own share, etc. Did did you see the writing on the wall for, from what you're painting now? Did you see that they wanted to change or not no, really? Not in, not in 2014, Jack. In 2014, it was still the golden times. There was, in effect, no competitor to LCA. LCA was the new kid on the block. It was the only kid on the block. Mm. All we had were some very poor quality imitations of LCA in the market. And broadly, they were in different geographic locations. In 2014, this laser hair removal and Botox had still not widely penetrated the market. Yeah, There was still a lot of meat on the bone. And... I mean, what was the purpose? I mean, I don't know if you were planning to exit even then, maybe you were, maybe you weren't, but what? why did you feel that LCA needed the investment? Or should I say, why did KKR buy in? What What, what was discussed in those initial takeover? Uh, I, so if the analogy is we were like the hot high school girl, right. all the boys wanted to date us. Okay. So we had a lot of private equity knocking on our door. Eventually, the money was too good to refuse. Yeah, they, they, they put they put too much cash in front of us. That at some stage we couldn't say no. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, in, in our previous yeah. podcast, I think it was episode forty five. Mm. You, you said yeah. there was two, three, even four offers before you said, "Okay, that, that's enough." They, they did have to do a lot of knocking before we took the money. There, there, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Now. Um, Gentlemen, just as I was going through my thoughts on laser clinics, the issue is from an outsider looking in and from what I've been told by people within laser clinics, KKR is more interested in making money from franchise fees and machine rebates rather than running an underlying profitable model. Mm. So much of the profits, when so much of your profits come through from taking 10% off the top line, it's in your interest to keep the top line up. You don't have as much interest to keep the profits strong. So can I translate that for the lay people? So what you're saying is uh, you've got a franchisee owner of the clinic who has 50% share of that clinic and KKR own the other half. You're saying that the, the profitability and model is actually based on making more money by taking more from the franchisee than from the general public paying for services. Uh, correct. Right. Mm. And, correct. So, and and how yeah. and why would that be a sustainable model? It seems illogical, but, you know, what, what do you think the thinking is? Yeah, look, uh, the, their aim is to keep like-for-like like sales stable. So when you look at the sales... Uh, the total sales in 2023, they should be at least equal to 2022. However, there's been such a fall in the areas of where they make the traditional money, such as laser hair removal and skincare and Botox, they've had to keep adding additional equipment mm. in their process, in their aim to keep that turnover consistent. They've just complicated the model. They've confused everyone, including themselves. Hmm. So where do you where do you think this is going? Where, do, where what trajectory would you estimate? Where where do you, where do you think they're going to take this model? Where, how do you think this story ends? 
KKR's only aim is to sell this business. Mm. They want to pass it on to the next person. Now, in reality, they were going to be out in three years, which is 2020. Now, granted, COVID has arrived, mm. arrived during that period. You're now five and a half years later. There's not a coherent plan for a sale. There's not. There, and in the process, in that period of time, competitors have caught up to them. Mm. They, they, they've allowed an opportunity for their competitors to catch up to them. And in many cases, competitors are running this better than they are. And from what you said, you've got 50 or maybe more clinics, but at least 50 clinics that were previously owned by franchisees who've now left who are not running very profitably or, or at least managed well. The, the, the entire model, Jake, was to have franchisees manage the individual clinic. Mm. You needed an owner-operated or every store. Yeah. It is too hard to manage these locations from afar and without having an operator within the store. Yeah. The concept of running 50 clinics from head office just does not work. No. And based on, based on the information I have, credible sources, information that's been given to me, the majority of those clinics have had a decline in both their turnover and their profitability. Yeah. Mm. C- can I ask, so obviously your initial strategy was to have a, you know, a, a, let's call it a rock bottom price for a service, but scale it with volume. And that worked for, you know, close to 10 years until you, you sort of finally moved away. But at some point, and we've discussed this mm. on the podcast before, that there, there becomes a race to the bottom where mm. yourself, your competitors, everyone is cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. And at some point there's a limit, you know, because of a profit margin and so on. So do you think that at some point, whether when you were there or when you left, that the price became unsustainable? Is that the, the crux of the issue? If you look at the prices in 2012, what we were charging for services in 2012 in no meaningful way have they increased, and we're now in 2023. Yeah. In that 11 years, wages have doubled, rents have doubled, yet the amounts being charged to the consumer are one and the same. Yeah. And this is in an environment where there's huge inflationary pressures, and I'm, I'm surprised that there has been no major chain that's taken steps in increasing prices. Mm. You know, they've increased it. They, they all claim they've increased prices, but if you look at it in reality, it's been of the order of five to ten dollars. Mm. It should have increased by the order of twenty to thirty dollars. Yeah. Their price, their pricing policy is not sustainable. It won't work. And to overcome that, to overcome com- consumers going somewhere else, increase the prices but provide a very firm price match guarantee, the same way Bunnings does. Mm, Yeah. What do you think about the word value? Because that's something that you hear a lot of these days in terms of what is it that's going to motivate a customer or a patient to part with their money? And and from my perspective, sometimes it's not always about the cheapest price. It's about what am I getting for that, getting for that money? David, the, the main players in the cosmetic industry space such as the likes of Silk and Laser Clinics Australia and Eden Clinics do not understand the concept of value. Mm. Or if they do, they're ignoring it. 
they're, they're just making dumb decisions and they keep repeating those mistakes. Mm. How would you fix it? If you had a magic wand or someone said, um, Bobak, they, they, they call the bat phone, they call Mr. Bobak Moni, they say, <laughs> look, we need to resuscitate this business. What would you do? With laser clinics? Yeah. First step is I would close down 30% of the sites. They, they, have, they have too many sites mm. and many of their sites are too big. Mm. It, it, you can't run a very big site. Why run a site that's 170 meters when you can do the same thing in 90 meters, 80 meters? Yeah. Why pay the excess rent, the additional staff on that? I would reduce the model. I would go back to its basics. You had a simple model, which was hair removal, Botox fillers. Stick to that original, stick to the original formula. Stop adding in additional items, which confuses everyone. Mm. And in reality, it's high capital investment that you're never going to get a return on. Mm. I, I would approach landlords to make a lot of the sites smaller. If, if you're in a site that's 150 meters and you can be in 80 meters, negotiate with the landlord. Even make your rooms smaller. The, the rooms don't need to be as big as they are. Cut down the reception area. Make it a smaller, more agile practice. Mm. One of the big issues is they, they don't have a proper policy plan to recruit and retain nurses and doctors. Mm. In reality, I would give equity. I would come up with some sort of equity plan to keep the nurses. Without the nurses, this model can't run. Now, this is going to be, my next comment is controversial. I don't see any way that this model can run sustainably in the long term without reducing franchise fees. Mm -hmm. Having a franchise fee that in the laser clinics world in effect, runs at about 17, 18% of turnover, it's not sustainable. It's not going to work. I'd increase prices. Yeah. I, I, with a strong push on experience, trust and results. Reduce head office staff by about 30%. Employ head office staff who have actual hands-on industry experience. Um, I'd fix my website. Just before I got on the podcast, I got onto the website and I tried to make a booking as a new client for Botox, anti-wrinkle injections. Couldn't do it. I, after five clicks of the button, I left in frustration. Mm. It's impossible to make a live booking as a new client. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the next place that either picks up my telephone or it has a live booking system. Gone are the days where you write to them and say, these are my two preferences for bookings, and you wait for them to call you back. This model, th their IT system is five years too old. Mm -hmm. Customers, particularly the customers of LCA, who are predominantly females in their 30s, will not put up with a second-rate computing system. They, they, they don't want to wait for someone to call them. Yeah. It yeah. should be, the booking should be live there. Yeah. Can, can I focus on something you said earlier, which I think is super important? Um, I'm going to call it the brain drain of, of good <laughs> injectors leaving these these larger companies to to go and do their own thing. One, you know, because people 
you know, they just want to have control and they've maybe got a bit of ego, but also just because it is more um, desirable because you, cause, cause the, the constraints that you work in and the little you get paid, and my understanding is more recently the actual commission to the injectors has actually dropped mm. from what I understand as well. So you're even disincentivizing them to stay. But what, what strategies do you think you could put in place to actually retain good injectors. I mean, I worked with David a number of years ago at Laser Clinics Australia, and it was great for a number of years, but eventually, you know, I needed to spread my wings. But there are a number of good injectors who who left in that similar period. And I really feel like, well, just my perspective, that was a turning point where they lost a lot of good injectors and experience, and they were left with inexperienced, uh, you know, injectors, I guess. So what, what would you do to improve that? Yeah, unfortunately for laser clinics, their entire model is we're going to get young, inexperienced nurses. We're going to train them up, and we're going to have a pool of nurse nurse injectors here. Yeah. The problem with that is they pay them less than the market. So after three years, these nurses are experienced. They don't. They're restricted in the in the type of treatments they can provide because laser clinics does not provide the full breadth of breadth of treatments. Mm. They don't continuously train them, and there is no path to equity for these nurses. Yeah. Now, that could easily be overcome. Why not, after three years, allow a nurse to go and sub-train one or two or three nurses under them? Yeah. And they get one to two, three percent of their turnover goes is added to their bottom line so that you have nurses they've got a they, they've got a method in which they can increase their ter- their turnover their take home pay because after 3 years a nurse will sit down and look and think I'm getting paid 20% of the turnover I can go and do this on my own and I can get 50% of the turnover yeah so instead of making $700 a day I'm making $1500 a day and I do it under my own brand and I don't have someone telling me what to do. Yeah. In reality, LCA needs to provide some form of equity to these nurses to keep them. This, this will continue its downward spiral unless they do. Mm. Yeah. KKR has one aim, which is to sell this business, to eventually sell this business. That's what they're focused on. And in the process, they have missed the bigger picture, which is to keep the customers and the staff satisfied and keep them in employment, keep them working for you. Yeah. So in the in their quest to win the battle, they're losing the war. Oh, great summary. Yeah. So where do you think the industry is overall? Because we've just spoken about LCA. There are about four or five other copycat models that are essentially – in, as you said, some some of them potentially doing it better. Some of them, I couldn't tell the difference when I walked in there which business I was in because they're all so similar. We've had some new regulations pass in the last week and a half or so, which are ruffling a few feathers, more so on the surgical side, but there is some implications there for injectables as well. So if you just sort of had to, if you're looking at the industry from a top-down view, where, what's your yeah. overall view of, of where David, things are I'm at? I'm very upbeat on the industry. Yeah. Find me, find me another industry that's growing as rapidly as this industry. Yeah, there, there are more people having Botox today 
than they did yesterday. There's still more people having laser hair removal. The market is still growing, except the people who are running the model, running the business. They've only got one thing in mind, keep prices as low as possible, run the next sale, run the next flash sale, just to just to obtain customers in that manner. they're, They're cutting their competitors' throats, but in the process, they're bleeding to death themselves. Now, if anyone who's running their business well, I mean, I'll give you an example. I think uh, Fresh Clinics is one of the best-run models in Australia in this industry. Uh, They are doing a better job than I was when I was running my business. Just a great business full of innovation, and they're ahead of legislative change. I look at that, and I think simple model. Yeah. That's the sort of model that comes in mind, and the the two Johns who run it will make a fortune running this business. They probably already are. The industry is going growing. The major issue this industry faces, and this has been the biggest issue in my entire time in the cosmetic industry, and even from the dawn of the industry, it's the legislative change. It's a regulation that medical boards come out with a range of guidelines that apply from 1 July. The main targets they had was cosmetic surgeons, cosmetic surgery. Now that's heavily regulated. Now, as a consequence consequence of them going after cosmetic surgery, it's also picked up cosmetic treatments such as Botox and fillers. Mm. It's now, there's a whole range of regulations around this, which is which makes this industry more risky. And it makes it more risky, particularly for the bigger players. Now, they've got to spend a fortune ensuring they comply with these regulations, that's with these guidelines that come through on the 1st of July. Now, I'm happy to take you through these if you want. That'd be good. Because, you know, there'll be a lot of listeners, certainly from abroad, who, who... Wouldn't even have a clue about what the current regulations are, let alone what's yeah. changing. So, and for anyone who was wondering what Fresh is, I know everyone in Australia knows who they are. They've been on the podcast a couple of times. So, it's two doctors, uh, both named John. Uh, they're friends of the podcast. They've been on here before. So, they essentially were almost the impetus for this exodus of nurses from chain clinics and and private doctors' clinics because they in some ways liberated them by offering them the medical support without having to be within one of those businesses. So that has been one of the drivers, in my opinion, that has led to so many nurses leaving these chain clinics yep. to go and start their own business, which is what you referred to, Jake, which was the brain drain or the, you know, the skill shortage now uh, that we have within many of these locations. So that that's fresh and they've just launched in, in the United States as well. So they're doing some really innovative things. Sorry, I just thought I'd backfill. And back, very back. currently, sorry, yeah. very soon to be in New Zealand, yeah, if so you're I listening. Just, so I just thought I'd backfill there a little bit while uh, Bobak's going to take us through the, the legislative changes. Yeah, and also, by the way, they're not a clinic. It sounds like they're a clinic, but they're not no, a clinic. Yes. They're a service yeah. that oversees uh, training, supply of product mm. and compliance. Yeah. Now, gentlemen, my view is this is the single biggest hit to the cosmetic industry ever. Now, the first point is conflict of interest. So when you're providing the primary goal today 
is as written in this regu- in this guidelines, the f- primary role is the care and well-being of the patient. Yeah. That that's whilst nurses and doctors will argue that was always the case, this is now enshrined in this guidelines. The very first thing you've got to do is the care and well-being of the patient. And prior to this point, I will put it to you and your listeners that the primary goal was to make money. This is the first point that's come through there. Secondly, you've got to make assessments of patient suitability. Now, the old, you know, uh, and I'll hear this comment made by doctors who are injectors. They go, they're suitable if they've got money. Well, guess what? Jesus, who says that? (laughs) (laughs) Not you, Jake. Not you. (laughs) Wow. Not you. So you now have to make an assessment of the underlying psychological condition, such as body dysmorphia, which may make them unsuitable candidates for the procedure. Prior Prior to these guidelines, anyone, and you see this, you see people walking around with massive lips, then they go through and they're getting another tubule on top of it. It is rare. It is a rarity where a doctor or a nurse turns down a patient Mm. who's paying for a treatment. Today, there's a different standard that applies. Now, and if you don't comply with this, before you know it, you're in front of your professional body. You've got to You've got to deal with them and tell them why you did injections on someone that should not have had those treatments. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I think all of these new tweaks and changes are actually for the benefit of our industry because we've been a bit of a joke before. Yeah. And like you say, if if there are people willing to just overstuff people, well, then that's clearly not good for the industry or the patient. Yeah. But the, how, how you apply that, is, I yeah. don't know how that's going to work. Yeah, look, it's. I don't think. I, I don't think the application will be too hard. It's like speeding. What do the police do? They don't pull aside every single person that's speeding. They'll they'll put aside the worst offender and they'll make an example, mm. and the rest of the population falls into line. Yeah, it it, it will be the same. Um, so now there is an actual, and I'll read this direct from the guideline. Uh, you must decline to perform a cosmetic procedure or prescribe cosmetic injectables if you believe that it is not it is not in the best interest of the patient. Now, this has ramifications not just for the injector, but almost all the injectables in Australia are prescribed, and they're prescribed on a video call. Now, it will become harder to find doctor prescribers because the doctor prescriber now takes on an additional risk. And Mm. it's hard for them to assess the risk when in the past this phone call has been 30 seconds. Now it's got to become a five-minute phone call. And is it it easy to do this unless you're face-to-face? Yeah. I mean, I guess, again, that should have been standard anyway mm. but you're right it wasn't I, I know examples of where it's a 10 second phone call yep fine go for it no problem but to have it explicit in law does make your injector and your doctor think more than twice yeah. hopefully and so that's good that that's a good yeah. change but i i i, I sorry bob it, just to when we're talking about well the body dysmorphia thing i think that consumers are very switched on these days i think that 
there will be complaints that come through from patients that are unhappy with their results that will then make those complaints either genuinely or potentially not genuinely under the guise of I have body dysmorphia, I got taken advantage of. So I think I can see that that playing out. Um, I then also see, well, I see challenges for businesses, whether they be chain clinics or otherwise, that focus on high volumes. Because if you now have a higher benchmark for assessing a patient's suitability for treatment, how are these businesses going to sustain themselves with doing, let's call it 15 to 20, 20 plus patients a day, where they now have potentially an increased cost in the scripting because now doctors perceive that there's a higher level of risk with providing that script. And time. And time. So what does that do to a model that is geared towards high volume that now has shackles put on it because of the extra time that it is going to take to undertake those assessments? David, I agree with you. This is this is a big hit on the industry, particularly the larger chains. They're the ones that will find it most difficult to comply with this. And they're the ones with the magnifying glasses on them too, because Correct. if you're going to make an example out of someone, you're going to you're going to you're going to attack the biggest bully in the schoolyard to make an example. If you look at what's hap- what happened in Australia in the field of cosmetic surgery in the mm. last mm. twelve months. Who took the biggest hits? Yeah. It was the biggest providers of liposuction. Yeah. They're, they're the ones the media went after. They don't care about the small provider. It's the same thing with the regulatory authorities. Mm. So now, informed consent must include informed financial consent. So wh- when you're doing a consultation with a patient, so just briefly, what the procedure involves, including pain management, what, can, what type of injectable is being prescribed, including the type and the quantity, whether it's new or experimental, the range of possible outcomes, both in the short and long term, the risks and possible complications, both in the short and long term, the risks specific to the patients, um, the possibility for the need for future treatments in both the short term, long term, as, as well as recovery times and specific care during the recovery period. Now, there is a, and then you've got to disclose all costs, including whether deposits, whether they're refundable, follow-up or aftercare, possible revision costs for additional treatments. All of these, now, every time you go to inject, every time you go to prescribe, you've got to keep all of these points in the back of your head. Mm. I personally think it's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm not Inject, here to. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. But look, but a, this a is of, an additional cost that they didn't have. I mean, forget the medical consent because that really should have happened prior. But if you speak to a lot of injectors, one of their main friction points and complaints is a patient not understanding, you know, further treatments and price and cost and uh, all that kind of stuff that that probably should have been spoken about, but maybe it was sort of put to the side above vascular occlusion and blindness. So to talk about that explicitly and have it written on a consent form, and actually the guidelines also say that a copy of the consent form has to be sent to the patient, I think that's great because then there's no uh, way a patient can turn around and say, you didn't tell me because it's right there and it's got your signature on it. Yeah, I think it's great. But yes, it takes a little bit longer. Although, although Jake, I would put it to you that given your... 
the requirements from both doctors and nurses by their their relevant bodies. They should have always been doing this. Yeah. The, the, the issue is that now we are saying, well, this person needs psychological counseling mm-hmm. before they have a treatment. I am opposed to governments constantly telling us what we can and can't do. Mm. They've made it harder. Now, in the process, in the process, it becomes more expensive to provide a treatment. Now, unless the cost of treatments goes up in the likes of silk by 20%, I don't see how they can absorb these costs. Mm. Uh, My view is the cost of injectables must go up. Now, the issue is you increase the cost of injectables for compliance, your volume then goes down. There's a very direct correlation between prices going up and the number of people who have them. Mm. So this is one of the reasons I'm not upbeat on models of the, the mass consumer models. Yeah. Well, let's let, let's talk about that because we obviously the the main topic for the day is to talk about the the impending silk sale. But there's been a number of businesses that have been sold. I think I don't think there's any chain clinics now that are left in the original oh, there, form. There, there are some. Not not, 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 um, the, not the super large ones. We're talking about, say, Eden, yeah, Strain Skin Clinics. Uh, yeah. yeah. You, you've, got, you've got Evolution yep. still running. Yes. You've got, and they run a very good model. Yep. You've got Australian Skin and Laser in Victoria that runs a good model. Uh, the Skin Boutique, but I agree. All the large ones, which are 20 locations plus, they, 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 they've gone. They, they've now merged into one. Yeah. Or one or two providers. Yeah. So... Let's let's talk about the silk sale for a minute. So, it's my understanding that the business was, was founded, you know, kind of similar to how you founded LCA. There was an original person involved that was the brains and the heart behind the business. The business then. Well, let, let me stop you there, Dave, sure. because I'd like to correct the record. Sure. Um, silk was basically a direct copy of Laser Clinics yes. Australia. Yeah. There, there was a bloke. Uh, can't. Re- remember his name uh, now um martin martin not not martin perlman right who was working with alistair and me basically copied the model went to south australia uh, copied it now right since that date since the dates they've done that it has been a direct copy of laser clinics there's never been any independent thought to running silk there, there, there is and, and i'd like to clarify that this was not a business set up where they had any any proper outlook into the industry. Right. And the only reason they did well is because they operated in a vacuum. They, in effect, didn't have any competition. By right. setting up in a different state with less clinics. Correct. Right. Okay. okay. Um, so that business then, it grew. It, it sort of grew quite successfully. It then became publicly listed. Now we're, Now we're looking at, a situation which, um, as far as I'm aware, is relatively unusual where a business goes from being publicly listed to then being repurchased and becoming a private a private entity. So can you just explain that a little bit to our listeners, what that actually means? Because I think there is some confusion yeah. on what is a public, yeah. publicly listed company yeah. and, and what is actually happening yeah. here. Yeah. A publicly listed company, it's on the stock market. Right. The shares, they, they trade at a certain price. And every minute of the day, it's got different pricing depending on who wants to buy it. 
who wants to sell it? Mm-hmm. Basically, they raised money. They, they sold a percentage of their business to the share market. The share market gave them money. And as a result, Silk gave them stocks in that company. Right. And you can trade that stock as you would with any share market company. Mm-hmm. Now, is it un- it's unusual for it to go from publicly listed to being privately owned. However, it's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. What's happening is not uncommon, and this happens a fair bit. Now, what's happened? Silk is trading at a certain price, and a private purchaser, in this case, API, West Farmers, has approached them and said, we will give you 30% more than what it last traded at. Right, right. And the Silk board would go, well, great, giddy up. We're getting 30% more. And we're in a model that it's got a question mark over its long-term sustainability. So we'll take the cash. Uh, now, in their defense, they've said they'll have to have the full board in support. But I would be very surprised if Silk does not take the deal. This is the deal of the century for them, deal of a lifetime. They're going to be they're going to be running all the way to the bank with this deal. They'd be insane to not take it. I don't know if you can quote some actual numbers. I, I did read it last mm. week when we were planning this podcast, but the figure for the purchase seems far lower than the purchase of LCA, which was, you know, six, seven years ago. Yeah, it's we ran a fab. If, if you look at the laser clinics model versus the silk model, look, you're, you're talking Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Right. And we all know how that ended. Um, the, the LCA model was a far cleaner model, far more profitable model, far more turnover, consistent branding, consistent branding. Look, if I look at it, and before this podcast, I had a look at the website for Silk, just very poorly done. The branding is inconsistent. I had a look at online at some of their locations. So many of their shop designs, they look like a public toilet. I, I I just don't rate. I don't rate the look and feel of the model. They've got a couple of locations that look good. When you look at the front of a front of a silk clinic, you don't know what they sell. Mm-hmm. It may as well be a private public library. I you don't know what it is. They have not thought about how to get the consumer in through the door. If you look at the skincare they're selling, it's just a dog's breakfast. It, it, there, there is. There is no way I would compare the LCA sale to the silk sale. Right. That's interesting. Just to quote some numbers here, I've just pulled yeah. it up. So um, the share value is about $3.15 per share cash, and there's about 140 clinics in the network. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's circa $170 million yes. for uh, 142 clinics. Now, those 142 clinics, let's not forget, many of them are, Franchise clinics where the franchisee owns 100%. Many are owned half and half. Now, back of the envelope calculation, top of my head, that's about a million and a half dollars for each clinic adjusted for what Silk actually owns. Yeah, That's an insane figure. API could go and set up these clinics, a better version of these. For less. Um, and, and for $300,000. I mean, what is the point of buying this where they can get a far better deal, far cheaper deal by doing it themselves? And interestingly, when I look at this industry, 
The best run chain clinic by far is ClearSkin. They're the only one with a clear strategy. They're the only ones where I could get on their website and go, wow, this is simple. They're the only ones who have not convoluted their model by putting in treatment after treatment after treatment. Really simple message. We do skincare, we've got laser, we've got Botox. Really simple message. And best of all, their clinics are not too big. Their Mm. footprint's not too big. So their break-even cost is, in my estimate, running about 40% less than silk and laser clinics. So just to summarize, do you think that that's overvalued, 1.5 million per clinic? Oh, like, like, it it is a terrible deal, terrible deal for API. I have no idea what they're doing. I I have no idea what analysis they've done on this. I mean, presumably, you know, it's not just the the clinic, it's the injector network, it's the devices, it's the, the database of patients. Like, you're buying more than just... A clinic, right? So yeah, but 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 the replacement costs, um, Jack. I'll put it to you that the majority of silk clinics are too big. They're in the wrong spot. They're inconsistent looking. They've got different devices. They don't have their network of nurses properly locked in. So far as if each clinic lost one nurse per clinic, hmm. their model basically falls apart. Right, interesting. It is a high-risk high play for West farmers. It, right. it doesn't make sense. But my understanding, some of that inconsistency, this is just what I've read and seen, I, I don't think I've ever been to a silk clinic, but they've acquired yeah. lots of other clinics, and so they've probably tried so, to have to sort of yeah, cannibalize yeah. the like look. like a Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, look, my analogy is, They've put a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid. Right. So what, what have Silk done? And if you look at their th- – this is the report they put out to the share market recently. In the last period of reporting, they've only increased their clinic number by one in the entire country. You look at the number of locations they had in Western Australia, Northern Territory, South Australia, right across the country, it's the exact same number except for Tasmania. They went from two to three locations. So what, what is the silk model? The silk model is simply, let's go and buy other clinics. We'll go and buy Australian skin clinics. Great, we'll add them to the network. We'll go and buy Eden laser clinics. We'll add them to the model. We'll go and buy unique laser clinics. We'll add them to the network. In the end, they're running three different, significantly different models that it's near impossible for them to rebrand to the same model. Mm. So they will have to run. Australian skin clinics under a different banner to Silk. Why? Because they're competing against each other in the same geographical location. Now, what's the best way of upsetting your franchisee network? Go into competition with them in the same location. Now, what is West Farmers going to do? West Farmers is going to buy someone else's problem. And before they part with any money, they should go and speak to a few Silk franchisees to see their level of comfort with what's happening in the network. Mm. Because it's my understanding the same issues that were at laser clinics with a franchisee uprising, it's not far away from Silk. Wow. Many dissatisfied franchisees. So 
with what we've said about LCA and uh, and some of your criticisms about the model now and so on, and Silk potentially being on the same trajectory, what would you say to a franchisee of Silk right now? Because a lot of our listeners are, are probably in that position. We we know we've I won't name names, but some of them have specifically asked us to ask you. Jack, what I've would got, you do? I've got two words: get out. Okay, and how do they do that? I mean you know you can't just sell tomorrow who do you sell to and can you sell to westpac uh, sorry west farmer like who, how do you do that unfortunately they're in a model that it's very hard to sell out of and the question then becomes why why buy into a model that you can't sell out of yeah interesting now in reality if i look at the typical laser clinics australia that a few years ago, a few years ago, was worth four times what it is worth today. And why? It's because of the way head office runs them. If you don't have faith in the head office team to run this properly, then you shouldn't be in that business. And in reality, if you get 50 cents in the dollar, it's better than waiting and getting nothing in the dollar down the track. Mm. Or if you are within silk, Go into partnership. If you're not a nurse within Silk, go into partnership with someone who is a nurse. Give them equity in your clinic. Allow them to buy in so you've got the providers of the service locked in on the same basis with you. Yeah. So they've got an incentive to show up to work. Mm. Could, could you have done that when you previously owned your clinics? Could you sort of no. sub-sell your share? Mm, not easily because the franchisor is the one that approves the sale of any shares within the business. And I never saw someone be able to make that leap. There were a few clinics within the network that did have nurse owners, but there was maybe only a handful of them that existed. Mm. Um, I think the rationale was that they wanted the nurses to be focused on their job, which is providing medical treatments, not to be, I guess, distracted Swapped with staffing issues. With staffing and, and dealing with the business side of things. They didn't want to take them away from that. So I understand. Jay, can yeah. in, rea- in reality, in the years, you know, 2010 to 2018, there was no compelling financial reason to offer equity to nurses. Yeah. The market has shifted. Yeah. Because and, had, and, yeah. And the important thing is that their models has not shifted. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a simple case of supply and demand, isn't it, Bobak? I mean, if you've got all these opportunities where nurses can go out on their own without these barriers to entry, which previously existed, then all of a Correct. sudden now you have, you have a supply issue because these clinics want to continue to grow. They need to increase their volumes. You need more people to do that. And all of a sudden you've got these nurses that are reaching a point in their career where they think, well, I can't go any further. I can't go to equity in this business, pumping you know, dozens of patients out per day. This is not what I wanted for my career. I want to go and do something for myself. Then you combine that with all the regulations that are coming out now. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. So which, that, which, which then begs the question, how did these big companies, they didn't make all this money from being stupid. They're very big, successful companies. Why, 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 why do these companies keep making such stupid mistakes? They don't understand the industry. This industry is very unique. They don't. See, they do really well when they buy Arnott's biscuits. Really simple. You know, you, you make a biscuit, you put it in the package, you send it out to the supermarket, they sell it, you run it on sale. There's no regulation on running. There's no equivalence regulation and guidelines 
in biscuits mm. as there is in Botox. They don't understand it. In reality, the people running the business don't know the difference between Botox and detox. <laughs> That's the quote. The quote I mean, for the- <laughs> if I can sort of throw something in there, we, we've, we've said both it's a blue sky industry where it's rapidly evolving, growing, and mm-hmm. there's money to be made, and also you estimated 30% of clinics need to close because there's too many and they can't get enough people on in their seats. So it's a bit of a paradox what you're saying, but, but I think what you're saying, they've, they've grown too quickly. Yeah. In the aim of, in the aim of our doing each one, because both LCA and Silk want to be the biggest provider. Mm. They keep opening locations in places they should never have opened. Everyone wants to be the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. They should aim to be the most profitable. They should aim to be the best. And in the process, they'll knock out their competition. Not to pick on any one location or clinic, but many of these clinics are in uh, shopping malls, high foot traffic of people. That seems sensible and worked well for a number of years. So so what locations and, and yeah. what's wrong uh, with they, that? You know, Jake, they've opened locations in places where I would say they cater to, um, you know, places such as Ikea or big white woods places. Right, okay. They're not the sort of locations that you should be putting these clinics into. (laughs) Yeah. And in, you know, some locations, some shopping centres, they have two locations, two retail locations within the same centre. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I have seen that. It's weird. Mm. Just, it, it makes no sense. Because you're, you, you've got to double your reception staff. You, it, it, just the way you run, it becomes a lot more expensive to run two sites. Yeah. You're better off keeping that one site open longer hours than to open it mm. second site. So do you think that the high-volume chain clinic model is somewhat antiquated as we move into, into a more regulated future and, and I guess, more, more patient, no, better? Yeah. Sorry. No, David, I don't think so. I think it just they just need to run it better. Mm. The people who run this business need to understand the business and they need to actively liaise with the franchisees and the staff who work in the clinic so they have a better handle on how to run the clinic better and they should worry less about their franchise fees and more about profitability at each clinic. Yeah. Now, I'll urge your listeners, pick up the phone, call your local chain clinic. Try to set one, get them to try to pick up the phone. See what a pain that is. <laughs> I've done that in the past. Just to see, I've wanted to waste time in the car, <laughs> and I've called one of the clinics, and it will ring and ring and ring and ring, and they won't answer it. Now, I know from what I've been told, in some of these clinics, the girls get tired of the phone ringing, they put it on silent and they put it in the drawer. Yeah. They don't want to pick it up. <laughs> I've seen that. I mean, what's yeah? what sort of business does that? It makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. And you're throwing probably millions into massive marketing campaigns and websites and all the rest of it. And yet, if the point of delivery of picking up a phone is ignored, what's the point? Yeah. There also seems to be a, a huge amount of emphasis on recruiting new patients. And it's always baffled me because you don't need to be you don't need to be an actuary or a mathematical savant to be able to come to the conclusion that it is far more profitable 
to focus on retaining the patients that you have than continually trying to replace them with new ones? How, how, does, how does this not occur to people? If you can't pick up the phone call of your clients so ringing to make a booking, if you don't make your booking system easy, if the owner of the clinic is not inside the clinic to ensure that there's great customer service, the model falls apart. Mm. Now, one of the examples I'd like to pass on, and this will be this brand will be known just by not just by local listeners, but your listeners around the world, ASOP. In my opinion, that's the single best brand to have come out of this country. It is genius in every way. I don't understand why within our industry, we don't have a player like ASOP who takes a serious look at the products they sell, the customer service they have, the look and feel of their store, mm. where people now go out of their way to buy ASOP. You just don't get that within our industry. And there, 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 is, a, there is a large void in the industry that can be filled by a clever player who's dedicated to branding, customer service, customer experience. And that just doesn't exist. Mm. What do you think patients want these days? Because the, the average patient these days is a lot more sophisticated than what they used to be. They're coming in and, and Jake can probably um, confirm this. They're educated. They know about the treatments. They know about the products. They understand complications. They've read 300 view, reviews on you before they come in. What do you think patients want these days? And do you, and do you yeah, think people are listening? I don't think custom, uh, patients want anything different mm. than what a customer wants at any other store. Sure. They want a great product at a fair price. Mm. That, that, it's that simple. Yeah. Th there is no, there is no magic formula in this. Yeah. Provide yeah. a really good product at a great price. That's it. Yeah. But I, but I guess in, in some respects, the customer 15 years ago is far less sophisticated than what they are today. And also you had, a, a again, getting back to supply and demand, you didn't have a, there a was Botox no provider. Yeah. So people was, took what they could no get. There was no competition. Yeah. There, those, day, uh, those days are gone and they are never coming back. They're never coming back. Again, once before I got onto this podcast, I had a quick look around and I rang a couple of friends, full body laser hair removal. For a full body laser hair removal, I can get that for eighty nine dollars. Wow! Oh my god! You know, relatively reputable supplier. Now, the cost of provision of that service for a chain clinic, the actual cost for them to provide that service is about one hundred and sixty dollars. That's insane. Now, that's the level of competition that's coming, and the only way the chain clinics are dealing with this is just let us drop our prices further. Let us let us run a flash sale. Their strategy is not working against what's coming in the market. Mm. That's scary. Um, what would your advice be for injectors? Forget clinic owners, injectors who are either outside the chains or inside the chains. Like, what 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 would you say to them if you could speak yeah. to them? Yeah, the and th this is based on given the guidelines that have just been released. My view is. Nurse injectors should go out of their way to work in a doctor's practice or under or a practice that includes a doctor. Mm. That is the best way of de-risking what they do. I think they should go and get three years of experience, four years of experience at one of the chain clinics, 
then set up either on their own within a doctor's practice or and or in some form of partnership with a doctor. But if they go into some form of partnership with a doctor, make that an active partnership. Don't give away a percentage of your turnover or your profits to the doctor just because he's got his name on the door. Mm. Make sure there's something in it for both of you. Mm. So, for instance, if you are going to work with a plastic surgeon, the plastic surgeon must provide you all training, must get you the products, allow you to use his office, deal with the complications. In return, you will refer potential plastic surgery clients across to him. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm. I totally agree. And, you know, many doctors who I speak to are nervous about employing a nurse, one, for responsibility reasons, but two, because they feel like that nurse is going to train under them and then leave and set up next door. So if there is a joint commitment, whether it's equity or something else, I, I think that buys some trust, doesn't mm-hmm. it? it? You're in there for the long haul together. Yeah. It makes You've sense. You've got to align interests. And that's why the laser clinics model worked, because the franchisee and us, we're in at 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone's got to eat. That's the model. Everyone's got to get a dollar. Yeah. Can I ask, what are your thoughts, David? Because you, you've sort of lived yeah. that life and yeah. got out of that life, and, and now everything's changing yet again. Mm. What would you say to business owners, first of all? That are in this space? Yeah, like the silk owners who we've just discussed. I, I, I'm very nervous about having someone who has control of my financial future, mm. who I don't know. I am unsure of their motivations. I don't think we're aligned on the same outcome. Because if you think about what the end game is for these people, as Bobak said many times during this discussion, is that their aim is to sell. So their primary driver is not having a long-term sustainable business. Their primary driver is, how do I make as much money as possible in the shortest time that is possible and then get out? And so what you end up with is a case of pass the parcel where people buy a business, they cut costs out of it. This is what, you know, what these large corporations do is they, they buy these businesses, they cut all the costs, they drain the money out, they show that the business is growing. They might try and expand in different locations to show that there's a growth trajectory for the next purchaser. And then they pass the, the problem on to somebody else. But in what happens after a period of time is that there's no one actually looking at the long-term problems of the business. So mm. for an owner who's in it for the long haul, be looking at, okay, well, I'm going to have a supply issue in five to 10 years time if I don't start locking some of these nurses down. I can't continue to drop my prices my overheads are increasing, the cost of providing these services are increasing. I need to increase my prices. How do I increase my prices? Well, I need to give patients a reason why they should part with more of their money. Mm. How am I gonna do that? I need to increase my service. How do I do that? I need to get better staff. I need to train them better. These are all long-term problems, like upgrading my website. These are all expensive, uh, long-term projects that aren't, not, they're not quick fixes. They take a long time. And when you've got a short, short-term short ownership horizon, which many of these companies do, they're not interested in doing that. So eventually the music stops and someone doesn't have a, have, doesn't have a chair to sit down because <laughs> yeah. that, that's my opinion. I, I think that th- th- this is the problem that is plaguing these businesses at the moment is the, the short-term ownership horizon and the divergent of interests. Would you agree, Bobo? David, I agree with you with res- everything you've said with respect to chain clinics. Yeah. However, if a nurse goes into partnership with yeah. an individual doctor, yeah. and their interests are aligned. Yes. The important thing is you must be aligned 
with your fellow shareholder. Yeah. Both of you will want the same outcome, the right outcome. But everything else you've said, with respect to chain clinics, completely agree. C- can I ask, w- w- we obviously haven't had enough time to evolve for KKR to sell or West Pharma to get to the point to sell because they haven't even bought yet. But who's that potential second buyer and how are they going to see value? I, it, it, like you said, mm. David, it just, it just doesn't seem to, to align. Mm. It doesn't make sense. Uh, they'll find another sucker to pay to sell it to. Right. But already already with hugely overvalued uh, clinics from what you've said. Yeah, about- look, I, I think to be, if you look at the underlying figures of laser clinics, the underlying profitability figures of the franchisor, it's still huge. So they have a compelling case to put this business on the share market mm. and to sell it on the share market. There will be the same way Silkfield did it because their underlying profitability is coming from franchise fees, which is fixed. In effect, they're getting, you know, excluding the marketing fee, about 13% of the turnover. Every time a consumer spends, they're getting straight 13% off that, of that top, top line. Plus, they get rebates whenever they sell equipment, and it's in their interest to keep selling equipment to the franchisees. For instance, they've been selling this device called BBL Hero or the Cool Sculpt. Now, they're making in the many tens of thousands of dollars from each of these sales. Hence, their underlying profitability is high. Hence, another buyer will look at this and go, great, this is a, this is a profitable model. Let us buy this. Yeah. But unless they fix the underlying model, the systemic issues, with the underlying model, this problem will continue. Yeah. And if you look at the best indication, there, there is only one indication. Have a chat to the franchisees of any of the major clinics, see if they're happy. By and large, it's near impossible to find a happy franchisee. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask, and I know you understand the industry really well, Bobak. so what do you think is going to change with new products available like new toxin launched last week there'll be another one maybe at the end of the year there's new filler ranges the the whole landscape forget chains and and boutique clinics that even what's available is changing so do you think that that's going to have effect on choice and price and maybe sustain Mm -hmm. some of these um rock bottom prices Uh, i think it will drive prices to the consumer lower because there is now an alternative to Botox and Disports, which is being sold at a cheaper price. When the nurses pro- buy these products at a cheaper price, it becomes inevitable that the market price will go down. Mm. So the big winner in this will be consumers. Yeah. Do, do you think that that's sensible though? Let's say you do stock, let's not use a name, but a toxin, and then you get a new one that you can buy cheaper, but do you think you should sell it cheaper? Um, unfortunately, market force is market force. When the person next to you is selling it at a cheaper price, yeah, you're going to do and it. The consumer demands it. I mean, it's, it's, you don't have a choice. Yeah. I mean, you, you can Going back to what David said about value, correct, that applies to a certain point. But at some point, you, there has to be value provided. There has to be – value includes price. Yeah. And at some stage, that's got to 
that's got to keep up with the markets. Now, you go to Fitness First, you're paying, I don't know, $25 for a gym membership. Another gym can't come around and charge $50. Mm. They won't have enough customers to compete. If they're a better gym, sure, they can charge $30 or $35. But eventually, market forces, forces of economics, will force pricing to its to its rightful place yeah it's like you do a really you've got a a a good name in the industry you've got a big social media following you're always busy someone who's relatively close to you geographically might say well i can't compete with jake because everyone knows who he is he's got a he's already got an established database Mm. my only lever to pull is to drop my price and 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 that's inevitably it it's it happens out of necessity people do what they need to do to survive and unfortunately unless you get everyone to sign like a binding agreement that they're not going to drop their price you can't control what these people well, do. Which yeah. is illegal, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. My, my worry is um, that the supplier of any of these new products, let's call it one of the toxins, if they, well, my understanding right now is they're not going to expand into the chains just yet. That they, they will eventually, of course, because they've got a big buyer. But my worry is if that if that chain then puts pressure on to get an even cheaper buying price, then again, this race to the bottom just continues and the franchisee share goes down and we just sustain this problem but make it worse. So someone has to stand up to the to the chain to say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not playing that game anymore. Mm. That, that's my opinion. But of course, it's very tempting to sell to 150 clinics. Of course yeah. it is. So I don't, know, I don't really know how you square that. What, what are your thoughts on that, guys? Um, Jake, that relies... That, that relies on five, five different people making a rational choice independently of each other, and that's not going to happen. Yeah. The yeah. market will speak. Yeah. Correct. So am, am I correct in, in saying that you think that chain clinics, well, your, your advice to nurses would be don't join chain clinics, but I know of a few sort of boutique clinics that, and not at that high level yet, but they are looking to do things of a higher quality, lower volumes, focusing on compliance. I mean, was your is your answer no to that as well, or do you think is it is there like a halfway? I, I think the chain clinics are great training grounds. Yeah, great place to be exposed to a lot of clients, but eventually, when you've got the skill set and you've got the following, mm. you can double your income. Why stay? Why mm. stay at a chain clinic? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What would your advice be to those independent clinic owners or, or injectors versus chains? Do you think, carry on what you're doing? Um, I, I didn't understand the question, Jay. So, So we've spoken a lot about chains and chain owners and chain injectors, but for those people who aren't in that situation, for, the, for those independent clinics, those boutique clinics and those boutique solo injectors, what would your advice be to them? Oh, continue continue doing what you're doing in right. your own independent clinic. Just make sure you comply with the new guidelines. That, that is something that it's on every health regulator's agenda. Make sure you understand the new guidelines. You follow those guidelines and ideally have a doctor in some way, shape or form involved in your business. Yeah. You must de-risk your business. Mm. So if you had to crystal ball gaze into the future, let's call it two or three years from now, what do you think the landscape of the industry looks like in terms of who's involved 
Are the chain clinics still the powerhouses that are, that are driving the industry? Does that change? And prices, yeah. Yeah, yeah look, um, I'm convinced for laser hair removal, they'll still be the major provider. Those chain clinics are not going away. And in particular, you don't have other providers of laser hair removal in the industry. But to come down to cosmetic injections, my view is the market is still growing. Their yeah. turnover will continue. Their turnover won't fall. The likes of silk and laser clinics, their injectable turnover won't fall. However, their share of the market will fall. And that share of the market will be taken by individual nurses who are operating on their own and they're involved in some form of buying group yeah. to be able to get products cheaper. Yeah. But I see, but I see the rise the rise of the independence now, being nurses. The only thing I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you on, but I guess maybe think about it from a different perspective, is that we've just agreed that places, chain clinics in particular, are selling laser hair removal prices at below what it costs them to perform. And in yeah. many cases, the only part of the business that is sustaining these organisations is the injectable side. Now, yeah. if they have a drop-off in their injectable, say they continue to bleed nurse talent, and their margins are eroded, how do these businesses sustain themselves with laser hair removal if there's no money in it anymore and their injectable no, site falls no, they, away? They, no, uh, um, to, they will still have their injectable turnover right? because the market's growing. However, mm. their percentage share of the overall market right. in injectables will fall. Mm. And they will always recruit new nurses to inject the clients they have there. Mm. I don't see um, I don't see the likes of laser clinics having a significant fall in their revenue from injectables. However, what should have happened, their level of injectable revenue should have been far higher today than what it actually is. Mm. The big the the two big risks for chain clinics are one the guidelines that have been released, two, there are not enough injectors within the network. On average, if there are about two nurses at each clinic, in all of these major clinics, they've got one and a half to two nurses. If one nurse were to resign at each location, their model is fundamentally screwed. Mm. Yeah. Right. What are your views on you know, the macroeconomics, get away from aesthetics, but just generally, because we did a podcast with you, I think October or November, we were speaking about the economy, inflation, et cetera. Where, where are we now with, with people's average attitude to spending and so on? Look, if you look at what's kept Australia going since about the early 90s, the, the number one commodity we sell is immigration. Immigration's been keeping everything going, and it's been a young immigration base that's coming in, and that's sustaining housing prices. That's sustaining uh, retail activity. My view is that the macroeconomics are not as bad now as we thought even a month ago. It does not look like we're going into any sort of recession or deep recession. There's still a fair bit of spending. The big issue is, Jake, rather than macroeconomics, it's competition. Mm. There is more competition now than at any time I remember. 
That's not just in our industry. Walk down your local street. There are now 15 coffee shops. This time, 10 years ago, there were three coffee shops. Yeah, There's just more competition in everything. But in terms of the macros, the spending, I'm yet to see a significant drop-off in retail spending, and in particular, given there is so much immigration. That's mm. keeping up overall spend. Can I ask both of you, because mm. I know you keep your finger on the pulse and you speak to lots of clinic owners and injectors. Maybe a few months ago, I, I, this is really anecdote, I've got no figures to back it up, but I think there was murmurings of clinics being a bit quiet, less spend, a yeah. uh, bit more gaps in people's diaries. Mm. So yeah. start with David. I've been hearing the same thing from nurses and I don't know whether or not it is the macroeconomics that are driving. And I think there is still an element of uncertainty out there i think that you know we've got wars going on the other side of the world we've got you know america tearing itself apart and all of the you know the political and the political sort of pressures that sort of impact people's confidence to spend but i agree with bobak i don't think that's driving it. i think what's driving it is just increased competition mm. i think there are so many more players now on the market offering like for like services that patients or customers spoil for choice. Um, so I think that's probably what's driving it. And I think that people are starting to realize that it's not just enough to open their doors and offer cosmetic injectables and patients are just going to walk walk in. It's not easy. This business, this industry is maturing. And what you need to do today to get a patient in your door is far more than what you needed to do even two or three years ago. Yeah. So I think it's competition that is driving it and people who potentially are in business that shouldn't be in business are starting to recognize that uh, maybe this whole owning your own sort of business isn't as easy as they thought it would be because it's not so idiot-proof anymore. Yeah. Do, do you agree with that, Bobak? Anything to add to that? Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. So I think people just need to get clever, more clever with what they're doing, get in, really understand what their patients, what their customers want. You know, Bobak spoke about just even the even simple example of does your website easy to navigate? Is it intuitive? How many clicks does it take you to make a booking? When someone tries to contact you, how quickly do you get back to them? Have you got someone that's answering the phone? Do you offer a good experience? Are you a competent injector? Yeah. All the, all those things. I, I think that that's what's driving the challenging times for certain people is that they just need to get better at what they're doing. 100%. And we keep on saying the same things yeah. every second podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, eventually, eventually it'll sink in, but hopefully before it's too late for some people. Yeah. Yeah. So parting comments, Bobby, anything to summarize any warnings or even good news for clinics? Cause we've I'm, painted a lot I'm of doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah. But based on this interview, I'm expecting a defamation concerns notice from both LCA and Silk. <laughs> Giddy up. <laughs> okay, Bobby. Well, in all seriousness, look, no one wants to get sued. And I think it's important that if we're going to give one side of the argument or one person's opinion that we essentially provide a, an open invitation for anyone from Silk or from LCA to come on and give their side of the of the argument or give, or give their perspective. So this is an, an official invitation for your right of response. And uh, Bobby, would you be prepared to come on and have a discussion with them? Perhaps we could have an interesting debate and go back and forth. Uh, David, let, let me check my calendar. I'm free from now forever. I'm ready to come on the program. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I mean, we've, we've given one side of the story today, and your opinion, obviously, is your opinion. 
and everyone's entitled to have one, but it could be an interesting discussion to have them come on and, and give a different view and maybe we can make some, an interesting debate series out of it. So um, if you're interested, get in touch and let's make it happen. 100%. Well, thanks, Bobby. Always a pleasure to talk to you. When are we going to go out for dinner again? I feel like I haven't seen uh, you in I'm, ages. I, I'm catching up with David tonight. How come you're not coming? Well, I'm obviously not on the list. Not, not, not VIP <laughs> enough, clearly. That's because I'm supposed to be paying. <laughs> <laughs> David doesn't own a wallet. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> here we go. All right, well, good to catch up, mate, and we'll speak soon. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care, buddy. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.